is worthy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning that we can be here. And we do look forward to the day when you dwell among us in a new heaven and a new earth. And until then, we will praise and sing the wonders of the lion who conquered the grave, the lion who conquers death, the lion who conquers sin in our lives, and the lamb, the kind and compassionate one who calls us to his side and shows us grace and mercy and forgiveness when we repent and by faith believe. And so this morning we say, he is worthy. He is worthy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Yes, we are moving to the next chapter. It's been a while, um, but uh, I'm excited uh, as we head into this next part of Luke's gospel. But because we are working uh, rather slowly through this amazing gospel, it is sometimes easy as they say, to miss the forest for the trees. It's easy to get caught up in all of the details and miss the broader picture. So before I read our text for this morning, I just want to remind you that Luke is building a case with his gospel. Remember, he is collecting all of these stories. He's pulling together eyewitness accounts. He's listening to firsthand experiences. And he's bringing all of these to the most excellent Theophilus. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. As Luke is marching toward his conclusion that Jesus is for certain the Son of God who's come into the world to save sinners. That's where Luke is heading. Now, as Luke lays out his gospel, he is unique in that he sees individuals. He doesn't just see God moving in nations and people groups like Matthew does, uh, for example, but he sees the purposes of God in the lives of individual men and women. And that's what we saw over the last chapter in chapter 7, didn't we? Uh, Jesus healed a centurion's servant. He raised a widow's son from his deathbed. Uh, Jesus took time to reassure John the Baptist as John struggled through a period of doubt. And Jesus, last week we saw, uh, he, he sees a sinful woman who has experienced forgiveness and is expressing her profound love for Jesus. So Luke sees all of these individuals. He sees people who are marginalized. He sees forgotten men and women, and he records them in his gospel. And those kinds of stories, as we saw from Luke 7, are very uh, heartwarming. They they encourage us because they remind us that, that God sees us, and it builds within us this trust and this love for Jesus, because we can relate with those people whom Jesus spoke to. So, Luke sees individuals, but Luke is also unique in that he emphasizes a very universal gospel uh, in his book. He sees that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, poor, rich, outcast, Samaritan, 
man, woman, child. And, and it's that emphasis, the universal nature of the gospel, that shows up here in the first half of chapter 8. In fact, if you have your Bible open, I want you to glance down and you'll see that in verses 1 to 3, the part that we'll look at this morning, Luke is going to summarize the gospel for us and then he's going to demonstrate that the universal nature of the gospel includes women, which was something very controversial in those days. Following that, if you look down in verses 4 through 15, Luke says, look, Don't forget that Jesus, as he went out, Jesus told you that there are four types of people and four different responses to the gospel. So be ready for those. Here's what those four are. Here's what those look like. And he lays all of those out. Then in verses 16 to 18, Jesus poses this question. What are you going to do with the gospel? What is your response to it? And finally, in verses 19 to 21, uh, Luke reminds us that this gospel, if believed or rejected, actually determines who's our most intimate family. Is it our spiritual family? Or is it our blood family? Right? So Luke, as he lays out chapter 8, does not play around. Luke presents this universal gospel of Jesus, but it's a universal gospel that demands a response, a response of repentance, and a response that has eternal consequences. So it's important for us to understand this so that we can respond correctly. Either this Jesus is who he said he was, or he's a fraud. We need to know. And that's what this next chapter will help us to do. So follow along. I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, just down to verse 3, and then we'll unpack this together. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Okay, that's it, as far as we're going to get today. All right, there are four characteristics of the gospel that I want to draw out of this text for you this morning. To help us do that, though, we have to understand what is the gospel, and specifically, using the words of Luke in verse 1, what is the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God? What does that mean? If I were to stop right now and one by one ask you to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God, and why is that good news? How would you answer that question? The phrase good news occurs 20 times in the New Testament, and the phrase the kingdom of God appears 67 times in the New Testament, but only Luke combines those two phrases. 
Four different times, three times in this gospel and once in the book of Acts, Luke combines these two phrases and he says, Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. What is that? What does that mean? I believe there are two ways that you can describe the kingdom of God and the good news that it it is containing there. One is a very broad understanding and one is a very narrow understanding and both of them are right. The broad definition, when you talk about the kingdom of God, is this. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of an eternal sovereign God over all of the universe. You could say it like this. God is the supreme an undeniable monarch over all creation. There are lots of verses that help you understand that. Verses like Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, right? In Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, we read, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion, endures from generation to generation. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, you read, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Why is this important for you to grasp? Because you must understand that All authorities in your life besides God, all other authorities are delegated authorities. The family is an authority in your life. The church is an authority in your life. Government is an authority in your life. But those are all delegated authorities. And so to the degree that those lesser authorities submit to the greater authority of God than we can and should submit to the lesser authority. But if any of those lesser authorities get out of line and buck against or reject the authority of God, then we no longer submit. We submit to the ultimate authority, that is, God. And you can look back over the last two or three years and you can see this amazing uh, conflict begin to arise in places as believers and as churches had to wrestle with this question uh, through COVID, whose, whose authority is in play here? Government authority or God's authority? And those were not always easy questions to answer, but it became clear over time that some people and some institutions uh, took the opportunity uh, to use Uh, the pandemic as a cover to target Christians and to target churches. And so we must understand that it is God who rules over all of those other authorities. So it's the kingdom of God in the broad sense is just that. God's kingdom has ultimate authority. Everyone must bow the knee to God. But there's also a a narrow definition of what the kingdom of God is, the good news of the kingdom of God, and it's spiritual. It's this. The kingdom of God is a spiritual rule 
over the hearts and lives of those willing to submit to God's authority. Listen, friends, the world is going to give you a lot of options over what rules your heart. It could be things like your career. It could be your parenting success. It could be your body weight. It could be your ability to hit the basket during the game. But there is only one supreme consideration you must face in life. Is the Lord king of your heart? Is Jesus the ruler of your heart? Because when you die and you get to heaven's gates, you're going to only be asked one question. Did you by faith believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's it. That's the question you'll be asked. Was he the supreme ruler of your heart? And depending on how you answer that question, God will ask you to step to the right and join his sheep, or he will ask you to step to the left and join the goats. To those on the right, he will welcome into his heavenly kingdom to experience his blessing for all of eternity. To those on the left, he will cast into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, cursed for all of eternity. And so when Luke comes along here in chapter 8 and verse 1 and says, Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He is telling us, he is telling you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unparalleled. God's kingdom has ultimate authority over the universe and over your soul. The question is, will you submit to that? Will you submit to it? Friend, if you died today, in which group would God place you? In his sheep or in his goats? There's only two. You're still here today. You still have time to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to his authority, and you'll be saved. Luke continues in verse 2 by demonstrating that the gospel is an unrivaled gospel. The kingdom of God has superior power. Now, we're going to come back in just a moment to the mention of the women uh, specifically, but notice what some of these women have been healed from, according to these verses. They've been healed from evil spirits and infirmities. Evil spirits is another name for, or another word for demons. And infirmities would include things like sicknesses, diseases, weaknesses, those sorts of things. And if you've been with us for any amount of time through our study of of Luke's gospel, you're going to know that Jesus has already healed all sorts of infirmities. From withered hands, to paralysis, to raising people from the dead. There is nothing in the physical realm that escapes the power of God's kingdom. But it is also true that nothing nothing escapes the power of God's kingdom in the spiritual realm. Satan is not a co-equal with God. 
It is not as though Satan and God are kind of duking it out somewhere out there in space and there's this big question mark about who's going to win. No, no, no. It's nothing like that. It is with unrivaled power that Jesus will and does command even the demonic forces to do his bidding. Jesus just says a word, go, and the demons have to go. Unquestioned power. He did this in the life of Mary Magdalene. We'll see in a minute. And if you look a little later into chapter 8, you'll see that Jesus does this with an entire legion of demons that had taken up occupancy in one man's life. Jesus is unflinching in his exercise of the power of the kingdom of God. And that should give us tremendous hope. That should give us a whole lot of encouragement. Because we live in a culture that is fundamentally opposed to Jesus. And it feels like sometimes that our culture is all-powerful. And it feels like there's nothing that's being done or nothing that can be done. For example, and even this morning I saw again online, people bragging openly about murdering preborn babies as if it's something to be celebrated, not repented of. In today's culture, people proclaim self-identities that don't match reality. They say things like, I was born a boy, but I'm actually a girl. I was born a girl, and I'm actually a boy. And they, and they demand that you acknowledge that. Today, people demand recognition of so-called same-sex marriages. And again, they expect that you should celebrate that with them, not call them to repentance. And those forces of Satan, those demonically inspired falsehoods seem insurmountable. It feels like the waves just keep coming and coming and coming. Let me give you some hope. The gospel of the kingdom of God is unrivaled. It has superior power. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. Do it with love, to be sure, but don't be afraid to speak the truth. If God is with you, who can be against you? I was just talking to a young lady yesterday, and she was telling me how she had to speak truth to a person, and it was hard. But God's power is with you. And even if you suffer for speaking the truth, and suffer you might, know also that in the end, God wins. You hear all the time in today's day and age, you need to be on the right side of history. Well, let me tell you, friends, you want to be on the side of Jesus if you're on the right side of history. Because he wins. So the gospel of the kingdom of God is unparalleled, it is overall, and it is unrivaled. Luke also points out in this passage that the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, is unprejudiced. God's kingdom shows 
indiscriminate grace. Notice specifically that he mentions some women here. Look again at the end of verse 2. There was Mary, called Magdalene, of whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chaza, Herod's household manager, and there was Susanna. Mentions three different women. Luke often mentions women uh, in his gospel. Women did not have high standing in the minds of the Jews. In fact, there was a rabbi, Rabbi Judah, who said at this time, and I quote, a man must, a man, a man must recite three benedictions every day. Number one, praise be you, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. Number two, praise be you, O Lord, who did not make me a pagan. And three, as you might anticipate, praise be you, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Now, in context, the reason why the rabbi said this was because the ability to keep all of the commandments of the law was considered to be the highest privilege. But women were exempted from fulfilling some of the religious duties because they had to first attend to the children and the home. Therefore, women often had an inability to keep all of these commandments. And so the rabbis looked at them as lesser than. They refused to teach women. They generally assigned them to an inferior place and they were considered to be unreliable witnesses. They they couldn't even appear in the court of law because they weren't qualified. You didn't know if they were going to tell you the truth. But when Jesus comes along, Jesus has a very different approach. His grace and his kingdom was indiscriminate. It was available to anyone. It was available even to women. It was available available to any person who would accept and believe in him. And in fact, Luke makes a point to show that it's the women who faithfully accompany Jesus all the way to the cross. It's the women who followed him to the tomb and watched him be buried. It was the women who were the first to witness his resurrection. And it was the women who took the good news of the resurrection back to the other disciples who were cowering in fear. No, Jesus did not immediately change the role of women in their society, but he showed care and concern for them and he let them participate in his ministry. Utterly unheard of. In those days, there were three women named here. As I mentioned earlier, first there's Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. That's a description of where she's from. She was from Magdala. So you could say Mary from Magdala. And the way that Mary is introduced here in chapter 8 makes it clear that this is not the same woman who was forgiven back in chapter 7. These are different women. It is unfortunate that many Christians imagine that Mary Magdalene was a grossly immoral woman, maybe a prostitute, and that's why she was demon-possessed. But 
The Bible never says that. The Bible simply states that Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say why. It just states the fact. Now, we're told here in this text that Mary Magdalene had been delivered from seven demons. That's a lot. And if you look through the scriptures, often the number seven is used to denote completion. Uh, It was almost as though Luke is trying to uh, describe to us that she was completely demon-possessed, totally demon-possessed. But somewhere along the line, she encountered Jesus and she had been, while formerly completely demon-possessed, now she is completely free by the power of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is named, by name, she's mentioned at the cross, she's named at the burial, she's named at the resurrection, and it was Mary Magdalene along with the Joanna that's in this text that carried the good news of the resurrection to the disciples on Easter Sunday morning. She's mentioned prominently in the scriptures. Along with her is Joanna. Now notice something neat about Joanna here. She's married to Herod's household manager, a guy named Chuzza. It's pretty cool if you think about it because Herod is this high-ranking Roman government official and his household manager would have been a guy that oversaw all of his estates. And so very likely, Chuzza walked the royal halls with Herod, and that was part of his role, kind of keep him up to date on what's happening with his estates and so forth. Did you ever wonder where Luke gets all of his inside information about the life of Herod? You ever wonder where that came from? Remember, it was Luke that said Herod was scared when he heard that John the Baptist might have resurrected from the dead. He got it mixed up with Jesus. He, he told us that, Luke told us that Herod was entertained by Jesus when, when Jesus was put on trial. And Luke tells us that Herod was very proud. And in fact, he loved it when the people cried, the voice of a God, not of a man. You ever wonder how Luke knew that? Ever wonder where he got that information? Probably through Chuzza and Joanna. It's probably where he got all of that. Here was this high-ranking power couple within the Roman aristocracy. But they loved Jesus. They carried the name of Jesus. They believed the good news of the kingdom of God and they maintained their positions. They lived out their lives there and it's through them, very likely, that we hear all of this backstory of Herod. Through Joanna, a woman. And then there's Susanna. This is the only time in all of scripture that her name is mentioned But her name means Lily. And because she was a believer in Jesus Christ, I would like to think that the name symbolized that she was a sweet aroma, like a lily in the nostrils of God. So think about this spectrum of women that faithfully followed Jesus. One was previously demon-possessed. 
One is married to a Roman official and one remains largely unknown, but love the Lord regardless. There, here are all of these women. So I would just say this. If our Lord valued and included women in his ministry, then every church should include them in every way that the Lord and his word permits. Further, the gospel of the kingdom of God, while it was unprejudiced against women, it's unprejudiced in far more ways than just that. God shows indiscriminate grace to anyone, men and women, boy and girl, black or white, poor or rich, high-ranking, low-ranking, it didn't matter. All people are offered the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the Jews in Jesus' day would have been very turned off by Jesus' indiscriminate grace. And sometimes I fear that we do the same. Let me just remind you that according to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, heaven will be filled with repentant adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, swindlers, and more. The key word there is repentant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it finishes the thought this way. Such were some of you. There are going to be people in heaven that used to be adulterers. There are people in heaven who were, used to be liars. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No one, no one, who repents of their sin and turns to Jesus is beyond the reach of his grace. John 6, verse 37 promises, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't think that you're worthy to be loved by Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're fearful that if anybody found out that you struggle with that sin, then you will no longer be loved. I can promise you that if you come to Jesus, he will never turn you away. When you come and you repent and you seek him, he will always show you grace. Have hope, my friend. The gospel of Jesus that Luke provides here is unparalleled, it's unrivaled, it's unprejudiced, and finally, it's undivided. Look at the very end of verse 3. There were many others who provided for them, that's Jesus and his disciples, out of their means. The good news of the kingdom of God has collective participation. Everybody has something to offer. Ryan talked about that this morning. You have a gift. By implication, the text here is is telling us that these women must have been women of substance because they were able to provide for the financial needs of this traveling band. They didn't look to Rome's support. They didn't look for government subsidies. 
They didn't look for any private foundations. They all partnered together to make sure that the gospel continued. And I would challenge you that the exact same thing is true today. We have partnership in the gospel. We assume a collective responsibility for supporting the ministry of the word in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city, and around the world. And I am so thankful, by the way, for the many of you that continue to support the gospel ministry right here in Bethel. Without you collectively using your gifts, using your finances, we would not be able to do what we do. But I want to tell you something. God keeps bringing more people to our city and he keeps bringing more people to our church. And that's a good thing to have, but it's also very humbling. It's humbling and we thank God that he entrusts the discipleship of so many to our care. And we want to steward that responsibility well. But because they keep coming, we're talking about how do we physically accommodate even more discipleship and even more of the spread of the gospel, even here on our campus. I mentioned to you before that our elders are working really hard right now to finalize a vision for a new education building that's going on to this building, we we hope and we pray, a building that allows us to continue to do the work that we're doing already. We also want to free up room in this building to to continue adult discipleship. I'm sure you've noticed as you've come down Fruitville Road, the businesses and the houses just keep going up, don't they? When Bethel was built, we were in the middle of nowhere. And now there are literally thousands of houses going in all around us. I'm all about Rosedale International. I love what Mike said this morning, but I also want to remind you that God is bringing the mission field to our front door. Literally. How will we make sure that the kingdom of God remains a collective participation that requires something of you. We need your prayer support and we need your financial support. These women and many others, it says, provided for them out of their means. How is God using you to collectively make sure the good news of the kingdom of God continues to spread in our time, in our place. The good news of God's kingdom, the majestic gospel of Jesus Christ is unparalleled, it's unrivaled, it's unprejudiced, and it's undivided. Come to him today, repent of your sin, call on him as Lord of your life, and then let's take that message to the people all around us. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. God, your kingdom has no end because you have no end. Because you are... Almighty, the supreme monarch over all of the universe, and you never cease 
then your power and your control and your sovereignty never cease. We pray that you would interrupt the lives of sinful men and women. You would call them to yourself through the good news of Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. And that men, women, children, boys, children, boys, girls, poor, rich, black, white, it doesn't matter, that people would respond and come to you in saving faith and find that you really are Lord, not only of the universe, but of their soul, of their heart. And that we would come together and we would continue to partner together to take the truth of your kingdom into a world that desperately needs you. And that we would go out of here with knowledge of your power. We would go out of here with knowledge of your indiscriminate grace. And to every person, we would preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We look forward to the day when you come back and you conclude what you've started and what we continue. But until then, we go without fear, without hesitation, And we tell the world about Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.